Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nernette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, Emily St. John Mandel is going to tell us about her new book, Sea of Tranquility. We keep coming back to the multiverse. I feel like we need to make this happen in a more official way. (laughs) Plus, we'll get some context around the Amazon workers who voted to unionize last week. And the fact that they were not only able to win, but win when established unions haven't been able to have a victory like this yet is a really big deal. But first, we're going to check in with two excellent humans about some stuff they're digging these days. With us today, we have Delia Kai. She's a staff writer for Vanity Fair. Delia, welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. We also have Vulture podcast critic Nick Kwa. Nick, welcome back. Hello, hello. Okay, so this is kind of a weird pop culture news week. It kind of feels like everything is just a huge bummer or just like eerily quiet, <laughs> um, which I feel like sort of fits with the general vibe, at least here in Chicago, which is like, will it snow tomorrow? Who can say? So we figured it might be nice to just load listeners up with a bunch of ideas for stuff to watch and read and do during what I'm kind of calling like the doldrums of spring. Um, So let's start with Watch. Delia, uh, you are recommending that if people are kind of still hunkering down, they watch season two of Bridgerton. I'm excited to hear about this because I haven't actually like read much about it. And I also haven't watched it. I'm trying to decide if I should. So what's your pitch? Okay, so I uh, watched Bridgerton season one, like all at once when it first came out. Like, I I remember it was like Christmas Day of like 2020. (laughs) (laughs) because that was like just like what an impression it made on me just like visually and and, you know sort of and also the softcore pornography yeah I know it was it was a real like you know jolt to the system uh for for that first pandemic um and so I've it's I've I've had this like hole in my life since then um because I kind of finished it too quickly and I have just been one of the people who like kind of got on that train, like read the books. I've been eagerly awaiting season oh, wow. two. Um, and I feel like the hype, I, I was worried that the hype was going to be, was going to overshadow the actual sort of delivery. But I like this season a lot because I think the headlines have been saying like, oh, there's less sex in this one. It's more <laughs> about like the slow burn, which is like true like i was sort of like oh is this the same show (laughs) so is this like a season length like colin firth's like fist and pride and and prejudice is this like what it is there's there's a little like there's a lot of like oh they almost kissed before they were interrupted (laughs) oh i mean that could be kind of fun i hear there's also a corgi which as a corgi owner you know that's exciting there is a corgi yeah it's really great and i think i I watch a lot of my tv analysis through tiktoks and i think uh, i saw a bunch (laughs) of videos that point out like just the production value is like even higher Ooh. this season so just visually it's like beautiful to look at um and I think the story is better too like like the first season there was sort of like it was it a bit of a, a questionable lot. plot yeah yeah hmm. <laughs> did you watch Gilded Age is another show that's nice to did. look at 
is does more stuff happen in Bridgerton than Gilded Age? Because that like speaking of slow burns, <laughs> like a little bit more, but not much more. <laughs> okay, so still there just to look at the nice things, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> it's sort of great, like like Victorian, almost like lobotomy content, because it's like you know, it's too hard. Just look. Just oh my look. god, Victorian lobotomy content that makes me so happy. That scent. It has remained imprinted on my mind ever since the night of the conservatory ball on that terrace. Lilies. <laughs> I kind of feel like the opposite of that is what you're showing up to recommend, Nick. Tell us about one of my favorite shows from last year, which was The Sex Lives of College Girls. Sure. In, in the amount of sex. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I was just going to preface this by saying that, like, I'm completely behind on watching a lot of new things, uh, with some exceptions. And I think one of the exceptions is the, the show that you're going to bring up. Yep. Yeah. So Sex Lives with College Girls came out in November. It's a Mindy Kaling production. And I believe the other co-creator, the other co-creator is the same co-creator as Never Have I Ever, which is another Mindy Kaling mm-hmm. show. It's a HBO show. Um, it follows four, uh, you know, college women. They, they show up uh, to college for the first time. They're all dorm mates. They start off being sort of archetypes-ish, or they seem like they're archetypes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing I really sort of enjoyed about the show is that very, very quickly within the first episode, and then again and again and again and again, the show is very intentional at kind of like just switching out, subverting, and playing around with the, with those archetypes within the context of like exploring, you know, women um, sort of sexual sexuality and uh, empowerment and liberation within the college context. The thing I kept thinking about when I was watching it too is like I was in college in like the early aughts, and so like we watched a lot of Sex in the City, and it's so interesting to think about what it would have been oh, like to have a show like Sex Lives of Col- like an age appropriate sex show as a college girl you know Delia did you watch this one I did I love like just how they got all these little bits of college life like the awkward like dinner with your roommates and their parents (laughs) I was like oh I've never seen that on tv let's get to the important stuff your love lives (laughs) who has a boyfriend Mom, we've literally been here for like six weeks. (laughs) So the show that I want to rave about is very different from both of the (laughs) ones that y'all have brought, which is absolutely no sex whatsoever. Yeah, it's not really a sexy show at all. So this is Severance. It's on Apple TV Plus. As of taping, none of us has seen the finale, though the finale episode is out now. Um, Oh, my God. I just love it. So, So, Nick, you have been watching this one, yeah? Yes, I I love this show. I'm so surprised by it. It is constantly surprising. It's funny because we had on your colleague, actually, Catherine Van Arendonk, like last month, and she was telling us about it. And she compared it to like Mad Men and Squid Game and Lost, which is like, what does that even mean? But it's fascinating to watch it because I think she's actually not. Like there is a wry sense of humor. It's super stylized. You can like do weird deep dives on like, what is that thing in the background of this one scene? Does it mean something? Like, it's just so much fun to watch, you know? Absolutely. There's also, I mean, it's like a very specific stylized um, set design to the whole yes, proceeding. Yes, yes. And I don't know, there's a, there's a lot about the show that makes me think, on the one hand, obviously, it's very quite overtly about you know, like workers <laughs> and yeah, like capitalism. maybe union power. Yeah, people go undergo this surgery and then they either like are their outside of work self or their work self and they can't remember between. But there's also a lot in there that like is a show about religion. Yeah. Um, there's a notion of texts and like the belief systems that are brought in and sort of, you know, when they when they become severed, they go down to the floor. They're like basically, 
you know the original man, quote unquote man, like yeah. the the innocent, unsinned like like worker. Um, it's like it's it's it's, it's working on so many levels, and it's also just so fun from a minute to minute basis. Do I have a family? You'll never know. And I have no choice. Well, every time you find yourself here, it's because you chose to come back. Oh, yeah, it's so good. Um, okay, so Delia, what are you reading these days? I just started Grace Lee's Portrait of a Thief. Um, it's like full disclosure, Grace is like a, a friend of a friend, mm. um, but I've been really excited. I'm a big lover of heists of all forms and like movies and like I love uh you know I love like the oceans movies and so it's about a group of college students um all of I believe Chinese descent who are trying to steal these um like antiquities and there's like you know tens of million dollars at stake but also it's like I think it's a really interesting um at least from what I can tell already it's a really interesting kind of look at like like who really owns, you know, mm-hmm. these things and imperialism and all that good stuff. Yeah, I read this one and I think it's going to make a great adaptation because it's like action packed. And I think you're right that it like there are a lot of really interesting conversations to be had around it. I think when it comes to like belonging and and ownership and yeah, like I think especially like what it what home is when your parents mm. are from somewhere other than where you grew up and and you know, regardless of how you feel about that place that you grew up. But there's like, you know, a super cool like car racing chick. Like it's just a really great cast of characters too. Yeah, definitely. Nick, what are you reading these days? Uh well, I am still in the middle of uh Patricia Lockwood's No One's Talking About This. Mm. It follows this woman who is you know, we can discern that she is some sort of social media influencer or a person who is like popular on a Twitter like or Facebook like social platform. You know, it very obviously intends to capture kind of the factor nature of like being a person online and, and just like having that, that having yourself being refracted through social media platforms. But it's my understanding that there's this sort of structural shift by the second half of the book that kind of brings it everything together. Yeah, I'm glad you know about the shift because I did not and it threw me for a real loop because it it's a huge tonal shift too and I was like, whoa. Yeah, I, I actually, so so my wife read the book first and she mentioned the switch and I'm like, ah, I wish I didn't know that going in because <laughs> I'm, already, I'm already enjoying the tweet, the tweet length stuff. Um, there's a lot in common and I think this is probably no uh, big novelty to say, but it's a lot in common between this book and like Bo Burnham's Inside. Mm. Um, there's there's a lot of refraction of reflection of like, you know, what it means to be alive in this in this sort of dissociative public, semi public sort of way. Um and I am thoroughly enjoying it. That's funny. There's a line from that book that I still think about where like she talks about how she for a while pretended to cackle like a witch because she thought it would be like <laughs> funny to laugh like that. But then at some point it stopped becoming ironic and it was just how she laughed. <laughs> and I, I just think about that a lot. I think it's super funny and weird. I feel like that's true for a lot of my tics. Um, I know, but, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so Nick, I want to come back to you for something to do. Um, you actually mentioned two things and I'm very curious about well i might be more curious about the smoothies than the elden ring honestly sure. but where would you like to begin <laughs> do you talk about smoothies first yeah let's talk about smoothies first <laughs> what are you doing with the smoothies i mean so you know, I'm, you know this is like uh it's kind of a weird weird situation like i don't eat breakfast i haven't eaten breakfast for like a decade maybe a decade and a half oh, so i get up around like six and i start working about six twenty. Hmm. and by eight o'clock i feel like i want to sort of murder everybody in the room uh for for like up until lunchtime which is <laughs> Maybe twelve thirty at best. 
Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a conversation in the household, like, this is untenable, please don't do this, like, please slap me this way. Um, and you're like, all right, I'll start eating breakfast, but, you know, cooking scrambled, cooking eggs takes too long, oatmeal is weird, and I don't like cereal. And so, like, smoothies, because you can pre-make it in the night before. Yeah. Ended up being just like the the easy thing to do, and you know it makes me feel <laughs> it makes me feel Californian. <laughs> it makes me feel yeah, healthy. Yeah, you know, and it's uh, yeah, I highly endorse uh, uh, smoothies. You can do you can do all sorts of shit with, with smoothies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Nick, what's the deal with Elden Ring? This is a video game. I googled it enough to see that George R. R. Martin has some sort of affiliation with it. Broadly speaking, okay. um, so yeah, Elden Ring. It, like, I, this is one of those things where, like, uh, much like many people my age, thirty-ish or so, like, I'm I'm so, somewhat shy with the fact that I still play video games, but I do, and I enjoy it. Yeah, good for um, you. Elden Ring is is a it's a thing that seems to be kind of bleeding into the mainstream. There's been a lot of conversation outside of the usual sort of people who already play games sort of circuit. Hmm. Um, and it reminds me of that moment a couple of years ago when like uh, when Animal Crossing was pretty big mm. and when Legend of Zelda was uh, Breath of the Wild was pretty big. It's similar in the sense of it's a open world. People go, you go around doing stuff and and killing things or or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's also just extremely difficult and very antagonistic towards the player. Um, <laughs> well, that sounds <laughs> I think, great. Yeah, the, the constant way I've heard people describe it is that it's a thing that's designed to it just hates you. Like it. it treats you really badly and it, it kind of challenges at every step in a way wow so it's like the anti-wordle exactly it is it is the anti-wordle <laughs> delia what have you been up to these days like is there something you'd recommend that people try out i spent the past year um kind of getting to pottery classes i guess mm. i'm entering that phase of like being a woman living in brooklyn <laughs> <laughs> like when i started i was kind of arrogant about it because I was like I'm pretty artsy like how hard could this be (laughs) and it really humbled me and so I kind of went through the whole (laughs) I went through a whole hero's journey where I was like oh my god this is so hard and like how do but I want to be good you know that's so good though like the beginner's mind stuff like to definitely you know I think especially as adults to like actively pursue things that we're not good at and get better at them is like such a pleasure I've been doing the same thing just to really lean into like being hella basic over here. I've been taking ukulele lessons. Oh, I love that. And like, I'm terrible. I'm <laughs> so bad at it, but it's so much fun. Yeah. I learned the little intro lick to Fleetwood Mac's Rhiannon. It's pretty cool. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, I don't know. I kind of wanted to piggyback off of your recommendation, Delia, and say that like, People should try, I think, especially in like whatever stage of pandemic we're at, like to be really intentional about trying something new but then maybe also as a person who is still recovering from COVID, also sleep as much as you possibly can. Yeah. <laughs> new sleep. Yeah. That, that's, new sleep. That's a phrase. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick, Delia, thank you both so much for coming on. This was very fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our next guest is Emily St. John Mandel. She's the author of a number of excellent books. Her 2014 novel Station Eleven was just adapted into a series on HBO Max. I got to talk to her back in April of 2020, a million years ago, when her novel The Glass Hotel was in her book club selection. Her newest book is called Sea of Tranquility. It has colonies on the moon, a future plague, time travel, a grueling book tour, so many different threads. Emily, welcome back to Nerdette. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, as I mentioned, this book does a lot. It's also pretty short. It's less than 300 pages, which I think, especially considering its scope, is an incredible feat. Um, I would love to hear about how you managed to braid all these different elements together in your brain. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it's never, uh, my brain's never as organized as the final draft of the book. <laughs> so I don't write from an outline, but something that was very different about this book compared to my previous books is that I knew exactly what structure I wanted to use going in. So one of my very favorite novels is Cloud Atlas by David mm. Mitchell. And for any listeners who are unfamiliar with that book, it has this wonderful symmetrical structure where it moves forward and then backward in time. So if you were thinking of how to map it out, I don't remember the exact time frames, but say A is the 1650s, B is the 1970s, C is the far future. It could be mapped as A, B, C, BA, you know, it goes forward and then back. Mm -hmm. And I'd always wanted to use that structure. So I tried to use it for Sea of Tranquility. I pretty much did, although I kind of uh, go off in a different direction for the very final section. And also the length, you know, I, I wanted to try writing a short novel just kind of as an experiment in form. I feel like my previous books have all been around 350 pages and this one's less than 300. Um, I think it's actually only about 140 pages in word, but my publishers somehow magically made it longer than that. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's, it's much shorter than my previous books. And it was really fun to just experiment with a slightly different form in that way. Hmm. I thought it was so fascinating because like it almost felt like they could have been like at least three completely separate short stories that you were like, well, let's figure out how to mash them together, you know? Right. Yeah. Just because they are so distinctly different, not only in, as you say, time, but also place and tone and all of it. Yeah, it's true. They are really different. Um, it's kind of fun to write that way. You know, yeah, some, yeah. something that this book does have in common with my previous books is I've always kind of enjoyed doing that where different sections have a different perspective and a different tone. You know, I played with that a lot in the glass hotel. The, the books are in conversation with each other in a really fascinating way. It seems like you're working in like a, it's like, you know, it's like the Marvel cinematic universe, sort of, <laughs> right. except like <laughs> the Mandel cinematic universe, I guess. Yeah. I did an interview with Esquire where she made reference to, um, the Emily St. John Mandel cinematic universe. And like, I feel like that has legs. Like if you want to join me in Trent to like introduce that to oh the discourse, I kind of love it. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm delighted by that. But yeah, I mean, I think it's such a fascinating, like you're, you're obviously exploring different genres and subject matters and points of view, but you're still kind of playing with some of the same characters and places in several of these books now. Yeah, Absolutely. Sometimes it has to do with fulfilling a very specific narrative need where hmm. in Sea of Tranquility, I knew that pandemics, broadly speaking, would be part of the subject matter because I wrote this book starting in the spring of 2020. So, you know, that was all we were thinking about and we were all frankly deranged and so is this book. Um, so I knew I wanted to circle around pandemics as a topic I knew I wanted to write about COVID, even if I didn't do it in a really direct way. So once I realized that I wanted to have a section set in early 2020, which is a period I'm fascinated by, by the way, that period yeah. around, oh my God. yeah, like February, 2020, when yeah. we knew what was coming, you know, to sort of paraphrase Olive's book and Sea of Tranquility, but there was just that mass failure of imagination where we knew it was coming, but 
in New York City, we still got on the subway without masks and dropped our kids off at school. <laughs> it made no it's sense. Fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, look, we're smart people. We could read the news. <laughs> yeah, I can't account for that, except as a kind of mass failure of imagination. Hmm. So once I realized that I wanted to write about that period, my thoughts turned inevitably to my previous book, The Glass Hotel, because I had these ready-made characters who I was really interested in and wanted to spend more time with, who um, you know, who were alive and in the right place in 2020. So yeah, sometimes it's just that I need particular characters and I'll realize that they're already kind of in my character back catalog, <laughs> you know, they already exist. Mm-hmm. Um Sometimes it's that I just kind of become attached to individual characters where when I was writing station 11, I found I really became attached to Miranda and Leon and also Clark, although I haven't used him yet. Another book. Mm, Love that. Yeah. Not yet. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Maybe he'll appear in the next one. Um, Yeah. So that was why I brought back Miranda for the glass hotel. I just, I found her really compelling and I just kind of wanted to spend more time with her. So how are you keeping track of all these different characters? I'm not great at it. I, I really need a spreadsheet, honestly. Yeah. Um, the books just take so long to write that it's not like I have to memorize new facts about who's in which book on any kind of regular basis. Mm-hmm. But I do have moments. Um, a friend of mine who's a bookseller asked me if there was a chart or something somewhere. And I was like, there's no chart, but thanks for this opportunity to write this all out in an email. <laughs> Just kind of memorize what goes where. So it's just that one email that you wrote. Yeah. (laughs) So I should probably print that. So one thing, so I loaned Sea of Tranquility to a friend of mine who's a very close reader, and they actually ended up reading it before Glass Hotel, which I thought was really interesting. That is interesting. And they pointed out something that I completely missed, which is Alkaitis, the character, Mm -hmm. and where he is in both of those books. Yeah. Um. An idea that I got into pretty deeply in the Glass Hotel was this idea of the counterlife. Mm-hmm. So that, for anybody who hasn't read the book, that's your counterfactual life. It's the life you didn't live. So the life where you maybe married a different person or moved to a different city or went to a different school, like whatever that inflection point was. And then what I got into in the Glass Hotel was think of the ghostliness of that. You know, imagine just hypothetically that the life you live is being haunted by the ghosts, the lives you didn't lead. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of loved that idea. Mm-hmm. So then it, it was just kind of fun to think of sea of tranquility as a kind of counter life to the glass mm-hmm. hotel, at least for Al Qaeda, where um, in the glass hotel, he's sentenced to federal prison and, yeah, spends, and that's not super spoiler. It's not super say. spoilery. I mean, yeah. it's based on Bernie Madoff's crime and we know what happened to Bernie yeah. Madoff. So same fate, um, a spectacularly long sentence in an American federal prison, but he has these daydreams that feel increasingly real of a counter life where he fled to Dubai. And then in sea of tranquility, he did flee to Dubai. And I, I, don't, I don't really follow that character in Sea of Tranquility, but... Right. It's like a sentence or two, really. Yeah. Maybe a little more but than if that. It but were, yeah. if it were a longer book, I would have him in Dubai dreaming of a counter life where he was sentenced huh. to life in a federal prison. 
Oh my gosh, that's so delightful. It was just such a cool, it was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. <laughs> also, you Thank know you. what you're describing is actually like a cinematic multiverse then. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, we keep coming back to the multiverse. I feel like we need to make this happen in a more right? official way. <laughs> oh yeah, no, yeah. I love this very much. So one thing I couldn't help but wonder about is, I don't know, I feel like there's a certain irony to your fascination with the time, especially right before the pandemic and writing another book about a pandemic, especially with an author on book tour Mm -hmm. about a book about a pandemic, right? There's a lot of layers to this one. But like, (laughs) but like, what was that like? (laughs) (laughs) How sick are you of talking about the pandemic? (laughs) I'm fine with talking about the pandemic. You know, it's, um, I think just in the spirit of more than one thing can be true at once. Hmm. I I think that a lot of us have had a very privileged experience of the pandemic. I know I have in the sense that nobody I love died of COVID-19 and I was not disabled by COVID-19 in the way that acquaintances of mine with long COVID absolutely were. So I was incredibly fortunate in a lot of ways. At the same time, I think we can all acknowledge the incredible trauma that we've been through. Yeah. It's been a really, really hard two years. That the book tour is completely autobiographical in the sense that I I actually had all of those experiences on the road. You and did not can you describe a couple of them? Because they're so they're like hilariously. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I remember, for example, waiting for waiting to find out if I was going to get on a flight in the airport in Amsterdam. And this is a scene in the book too. And this guy, this business traveler sat down next to me and just started kind of monologuing about his career. And I I was on Delta.com, like trying to rebook my flight. (laughs) And I really wasn't giving him much encouragement. I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, I'm just uh, booking a flight here. (laughs) He's busy. And then Uh finally he got around to saying, and what do you do? And I said, oh, I I write books. He said, for children. And, you know, that stays with you. Um, Or, you know, this is kind of fascinating to me. The most sexist thing anybody ever said to me was said to me by a woman on tour. Hmm. This woman in Texas who said, you must have a very kind husband to look after your child while you do this. Yeah. So that there was, if I'm being honest here, like a certain pleasure <laughs> like, you know, oh, God, using, sure. yeah, yeah. And just, uh, you know, I guess exposing all these strange moments to daylight. So I wanted to talk to you just a little bit about um, the adaptation of Station Eleven because yeah, it's sure. super exciting. I had a really interesting conversation with a TV critic recently though, who who talked about how she thought Station Eleven was a really great adaptation because it wasn't like a word-for-word screen recreation. It took its own creative license while still working from the text. I thought it was a really beautiful description, and I was curious how it felt for you, you know, as someone who was involved in the production, seeing something that used to live in your brain go onto the screen the way it did. It's pretty extraordinary, I have to say. Um, I, yeah, I didn't really have any official involvement with the production beyond a few early conversations with the showrunner, Patrick oh, Somerville. Really? I thought you were more involved than in that. No, That's fascinating. no, not at all. Yeah. You know, I signed off on a couple of major changes like, um, in the okay. book. So in the book it's Toronto and right. there's a kind of journey through the city of Toronto. Um, Patrick doesn't know Toronto super well, but he had lived in Chicago 
And he wanted to be able to bring that deep knowledge of place to that sort of sense of a journey. So as a person who lives in Chicago, I was delighted by that. Well, good. Seeing that plane crash into the Ferris wheel at Navy Pier really was thrilling. (laughs) Yeah. Because like a lot of Canadians are really mad. So I appreciate you saying that as a a counterbalance. Yeah. I mean, I I thought it was gorgeous. I thought it was really beautiful. I thought so too. Yeah. I I, I love what they did. Um, There's this one change I really wish I'd thought of, honestly. So when Kirsten goes home with Jeevan to Frank's place, like, I wish I'd done that in the book. Uh, huh. That is such an elegant way to tie Jeevan in with the rest of the characters, which wow. in the book, he never quite connects with the others. So yeah, the, the changes were great. It was really nice, I have to say, during the time during the pandemic when it was filming, just thinking about all of these hundreds of people at this faraway set up in Canada, having this intense experience of Station Eleven that had nothing to do with me. That, that was yeah. that was kind of mind-blowing. That's so amazing. Well, Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about kind of all the things. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, thanks for interviewing me. In just a minute, we'll hear about what the Amazon union vote means for labor movements in the U.S. in general. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. During the pandemic, a lot of us have experienced a shift in our relationships with work, working from home, figuring out how to go to work and stay safe. There's also the great resignation and unionization efforts are popping up at places like Starbucks, Condé Nast and most recently Amazon. Last week, employees at a Staten Island Amazon warehouse voted to unionize. They're asking for wage increases, better work hours, and protection from injuries. Caroline O'Donovan reports for BuzzFeed and has been following the story. Caroline, hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. So uh, for the record, both of us are members of unions. So like long distance union high five. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit about what happened with last week's vote? This is fascinating. It really, really is fascinating. There were actually two um, union election votes at different Amazon facilities last week. One was the rerun of the election in Bessemer, Alabama, um, which ended up being so close that they actually haven't declared a winner or a loser one way or the other yet. That will take even more time. And it's already taken more than a year for those folks down there. Um, But I think for sure, the big news of the week last week was that the Amazon labor union effort in Staten Island um, won. And they actually won by so much that there's no need to count the challenged ballots. It's pretty much a done deal. Um, I suppose the company could file objections, but it's still a huge victory, especially because the Amazon labor union is an independent union. They do have, you know, some powerful political uh, supporters, for sure. Uh, If you're on Twitter, you know, you'll see Bernie Sanders tweeting about their victory and things Mm -hmm. like that. Um, But it's a really fascinating event just because these are 
for the most part, rank and file workers who have never done anything like this before. And the fact that they were not only able to win, but win when established unions haven't been able to have a victory like this yet is a really big deal. So there have been other efforts to unionize Amazon warehouses in the past. What do you think made this one successful? Yeah, I mean, they had this super interesting leader. His name is Chris Smalls. And I mean, he's one of a group of leaders, obviously, but he was actually fired from by Amazon um, at the very beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. And then uh, a memo leaked, a vice reporter reported that there was a memo circulating inside um, Amazon executive ranks uh, that referred to this individual, Chris Smalls, as not not smart or articulate, I think, mm-hmm. um, as a labor leader. And so I think that kind of, you know, uh, crystallized him as someone that people were paying attention to. Um, and I think what, you know, what those folks would say is that when you have um, an established union come in, people have a lot of preconceived notions about what an organization like that is, what their motivations are. And I think what you see in Staten Island is a group of people that really is just workers. And I think that that can be really effective and connect um, really strongly with other workers, right? Because they don't, you're taking away that element of, of questioning of, is this some sort of third party that's just trying to use me in the same way that my employer is trying to use me? Obviously, this is a big story. I mean, you even said that. But like, I'm curious, like if you zoomed out more, can you talk a little bit about the status of organized labor in this country in general? Like, do you think this is part of a sea change? Uh, You know, I've written a little bit about in the last few months, um, there is this sort of disconnect between um, the public sentiment around unionizing and organized labor, which is higher now than it's been in decades. And, you know, you were talking at the beginning of the show about the great resignation, this like shift that we all feel and talk about in terms of um, how people think about work, which actually does not match up to what is happening um, to the number of unionized workers in this country, which is actually decreasing every year. Unions are winning fewer new members every year. Um, But who knows? I mean, is there a disconnect? Yes, but that's past data. We don't know what the future data is going to look like, right? So maybe we are at that Delta moment. It'll be interesting to see how things go. Well, Caroline, thank you so much. This was great. Yeah, thank you so much. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening along. Did you know we also have a pretty fun little newsletter? We've sent it out every Friday morning. It's got a link to the newest episode and links to just like a bunch of cool stuff. Maybe some recipes, some books, a podcast or two, just fun things. You're going to love it. You can sign up for it at wbez.org slash AF. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. Our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. We will see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.